and try again. Torah Resource presents the Rob and Caleb Show. All aboard! And now, from two sides of the same state, here they are, Rob and Caleb. Oh, what up? And shalom. Welcome to the Rob and Caleb Show. My name is Caleb Hegg, and with me, as always, my friend, my mentor, my teacher, Rob Vanhoff. What up, Rob? How's it going, brother? We are not on two sides of the same state. We are in the exact same room. That's right. We are all in Spokane, and it's not just the Rob and Caleb show today. No, it's the Rob, Caleb, Tim, Gary, and Ariel show. What up, everybody? How's it going? Yo, Caleb. Sounding good, my brother. <laughs> <laughs> it's weird when your dad calls you your brother. Great to be here in Apple Country. <laughs> now, today, we're going to have a very fun... <laughs> today we're going to have a very fun show because today we're going to talk about some very interesting things. If you hear things going on in the background, it's because we all have tea in front of us. We have chocolates. I'm messing with a soundboard here. And our good brother, Yahashua Joe. Yeah, that's right. All the way from Japan is with us. Ta- woohoo! Taking some pictures for us. And we are so blessed to have him here. And uh, so th- today, as promised... Like I said last week, we're going to talk about amillennialism and dispensationalism. And Ariel, what were you raised as? A dispensationalist? Were you, were you, were you brought up in the dispensational faith? I didn't become a believer until I was about 20, 19 or 20 years old. And very shortly after that, I had a large dispensational influence in my life. So there you go. Dispensational. And Gary, you were raised a... Probably in a Presbyterian, mostly a pretty pretty uh, staunch reform. So the amillennial side would have been part of my education. And uh, let's see here, Rob. I was raised real conservative Lutheran, and we didn't talk about that sort of thing. All I, I just believed that the Pope was the Antichrist. <laughs> <laughs> of course. So, like, all that worked out already. And I know the answer to this one, but Dad, Tim? Yeah, my dad, uh, Oscar Haig, uh, pastored uh, Baptist churches for 53 years. He was a graduate of Multnomah School of the Bible. It's now called something different. And he also graduated from Dallas Theological Seminary, which tells you that he was indeed a dispensationalist. And when did you leave the dispensational belief? Because I know you've left it. I began leaving it the senior year of my college. Uh, we were required to be doing some uh, translating and exegeting of various passages out of the Greek. I had taken three years of Greek, and this third year uh, I was doing some work with that, and I began to have questions about how to fit this all together. Some of the things didn't match up. When I finally went to seminary, I decided, interestingly, to become an amillennialist. Hmm. And uh, I didn't even know exactly, but I knew it wasn't dispensational. And so I began to, uh, long story short, began to study what amillennialism was uh, because many of the the, uh, uh, theologians that I respected in terms of their doctrine of salvation uh, were amillennialists. I thought, well, maybe that's where I fit. After I did some investigation, I knew I couldn't remain there and so became what is typically known as a historical premillennialist. I suppose at some point in this show we're going to define all these We terms. will define all these terms. I was raised by my father, and I will be real honest, I'm sure that my dad would say that uh, he raised me a specific way, but I don't recall, and I'm sure we talked about it, but 
I do not recall ever having these kind of conversations. I never recall bring, being brought up in a dispensational or an amillennial or a historical whatever view. That never really was even an issue to me until well, recently. Honestly, it wasn't until maybe uh, 2008 that I started to actually understand what these, what these terms were. Well, I think the reason for that was is that in our home we talked a lot about the coming of Yeshua and to be ready for his coming. And uh, we didn't talk about the fact of, you know, he's going to take us out of this earth and then, and then the, you know. Now, I, I, did, I, I was raised with the idea of, you know, I knew about the different ideas of, uh, like, pre-trib, post-trib, all those kind of different doctrines. But I didn't realize that that actually factored into these doctrines. So let's let's define terms for a few seconds. Now that we know how everyone was raised, dispensationalism. Now, I've <laughs> I've been having some fun conversations with people online. Someone told me and I'll wait for I'll I'll let all of you jump on this at once. Somebody told somebody said to me that if I believed in a thousand-year reign, if I believed that Zechariah 14 was not already completed that I was a dispensationalist. Go. <laughs> well, okay. First, first of all, first of all, let's get let's get very uh, down to the root here. Millennium is a word from the Latin which means a thousand. Okay, so it comes from uh, Revelation twenty one, where it says basically that he's or is it twenty? It's, it's, it's in there. Okay. Yeah. Revelation is Revelation. not the name of the starship. No, <laughs> the starship. Okay. So it, it means thousand years. The question was, is is Yeshua in the future going to reign for a thousand years upon the earth? And uh, so that became known as a millennium. Ah, millennium is, is simply uh, the ah in front of it. No, or not, no millennium. And those who hold to this simply believe that the reign of the Messiah is is in heaven he reigns at the right hand of the father but we as his people reign upon the earth in his place or in in, in a sense he reigns through us so there they would say the amillennialist would say he's reigning right now this is the millennium okay and they would say millennium isn't a, a thousand years it's just a long period of time and a thousand just means long period of time uh premillennialist means that Yeshua is going to come back uh, as uh, as First Thessalonians four prophesies and others that he's going to descend from heaven with a shout with the voice of the archangel and so forth, in, and then after he comes back the millennium will will start. However, most premillennialists are dispensationalists because they believe he's going to come back, take the church out of the world. Then he's going to bring the great tribulation, and after that will be the millennium. So the idea of dispensational, uh, a dispensational view also has to do with the idea that the covenant, like the one, one reason that I would say I'm not a dispensationalist is because I believe that the covenants, all covenants, uh, are still in act today. And whereas a dispensational view would say different covenants are in act at different t- periods of times throughout history. Gary? I was just going to add this verse real quick, because when you're speaking of dispensationalism, there's a hermeneutical principle, and there's one very important verse that you must handle correctly if you're going to ever get unlock the rest of the Bible. It's 2 Timothy 2, mm-hmm. verse 15, which reads, Be diligent to present yourselves approved to God, a worker who does not need to be ashamed, rightly dividing the word of truth. Right. 
And that verse, and I'm sorry, that was the New King James. <gasps> oh, my word. I didn't use the Old King James, because that would have been the Heaven forbid. way to interpret that verse. Take the mic away. But the key, <laughs> is, the key is rightly dividing the word of truth. Okay, but let, let's, get back to, let's get back to dispensationalism. There's three main pillars of dispensationalism, okay? These are the, the foundations. The, the, some dispensationalists would say it, it's very, it goes back to the time of Yeshua and earlier, but most everyone who is willing to be honest with history tells you that it start, started with a fellow by the name of Darby and maybe a little bit earlier than that and really was made popular by a fellow by the name of Schofield in his Schofield Bible and Schofield Notes. Okay, so the three pillars. And diagrams. And diagrams, right. <laughs> That's Larkin. 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 Yeah, yeah Larkin's uh, uh, diagrams that, that, that take the whole wall if you want them to. Okay, uh, first is that there is an utter separation between the church and Israel. Israel is not the church. The church is not Israel. Okay, that's one of the first pillars. The second pillars. The second pillar is is that the whole the Bible is not summed up, or the message of God is not summed up in salvation. It's summed up in kingdom. Okay, kingdom is the is the issue. Okay, so to, to say, to, to, and that's kind of a strike at the reformed view that you know you guys just talk always about God saving, God saving, God saving. He saves in order to bring in his kingdom. Okay, so they would say kingdom is the big story that we have to keep in mind. And the third pillar is that God requires different things in different dispensations. Now, interestingly, Schofield found seven, you would imagine, seven dispensations. So what God required, for instance, in the dispensation of Adam, the time between from Adam to the flood, was different than what he required after the flood, what was different that he required for the period of the prophets, and was different for the church age. And this is big for the dispensationalists. They would say that the church age began when at Shavuot, or they would say Pentecost, the Spirit descended. And the church age ends when the church is taken away. So that's the church age. Then you have the period of the uh, tribulation, you have the period of the millennium, and then you have the period of eternity. So there's different laws for different things. Now, I, I don't want to take all this time, but I just want to say this about the dispensationalists. They had a very important part in, in, in bringing back this idea that there's a future for Israel because dispensationalists believe that there's a future for national Israel mm -hmm. in the millennium. Now, that's why Israel will be, will be saved and will reign with the Messiah in the millennium, but the church, which is always separate from Israel, will be in heaven. And I remember asking my dad, well, I want to be, I want to be on earth. If that's where Jesus is going to be, you know. And he said, no, no, no. He said, Jesus can go back and forth between heaven and earth <laughs> without any problem. Doesn't he already do that, though? <laughs> so, anyway, that, that's dispensationalism, okay? Very briefly, so-called historic premillennialism is that the people of God are, are brought through the tribulation. Many of them give their lives... You know, they wash their robes and make them white in the blood of the Lamb, so forth and so on. Uh, after the millennium, then, uh, there is the reign of Yeshua, or after the tribulation, excuse me, there's the reign of, of, of Yeshua for a thousand years, and then right, the thousand years goes right into the world to come. And so it, it doesn't have all of these breakups of periods. There's more continuity in historic premillennialism than there is, obviously, in dispensational premillennialism. I should say real quick... Uh, I told Ariel Berkowitz that I was going to bring him onto this show, and he said, "You don't want me on the show. 
I'm a yes-no guy. You ask a question, I say yes, I say no. So if you hear me every once in a while say something to the effect of, Ariel, anything to say about that? That's why. I'm, pr- I'm trying to pull him into conversation so that, so that he can have more of a voice on the Rob and Caleb show. Okay, so uh, we've talked about what dispensationalism is. We've talked about amillennialism, right? Uh, so let's pose this question. What do you say to an amillennialist who says something to the effect of uh, Zechariah, all the prophecies in Zechariah? have been fulfilled. Right? It's already been done away. It's already been done. It's all, it's all, it's all been fulfilled. Here's the thing that, has, that initially, when I, I mean, I, I was an amillennialist for a week and didn't know it. You know, I, I just said I was just, just to raise A thousand minutes. Yeah, a thousand minutes, yes. And I started, of course, I was reading the prophets to see what the prophets said. The thing that, the story that comes over and over again in the prophets is God said, because, and he's talking to Israel, he's talking to national Israel, he said, because you were disobedient, because you went after other gods, because you strayed from me, because you would not obey me, I sent you to the land of your enemies. And even as I punished you, I will bring you back. The same people that he, the same nation that he punishes. For instance, I have open here uh, Ezekiel 36. And if we start, um, you, you, when you, if you start, for instance, in in uh, verse, uh, well, at the beginning of the chapter, he's saying, because you have done this, but for verse 8, for instance, but you, oh, mountains of Israel, you will put forth your branches and bear your fruit for my people Israel, for they will soon come, because they're exiled. For behold, I am for you. I will turn to you, and you will be cultivated and sown. I will multiply men on you, all the house of Israel of it. But he says uh, in verse 12, yes, I will cause men, my people Israel, to walk on you and possess you so that you will become their inheritance and never again bereave their children. Thus says the Lord God, verse 13, because they say to you, you are a devourer of men and have bereaved of your nation of, of children, therefore you will no longer devour men and no longer bereave your nation of children, declares the Lord. I will not let you hear insults. If you keep going down to the chapter, he says, uh, he says, uh, well, the prophet says, Son of man, when the house of Israel was living in their own land, they defiled it by their ways and their deeds. Their way before me was like the uncleanness of a woman and her impurity. Therefore, I poured out my wrath on them for the blood which they had shed on the land because they had defiled it with their idols. So I scattered them to the nations. And he goes on to talk about that. And he says, when they come to the nations, the nations mock them and say, your God isn't strong enough to even keep them in the land. Now go down to verse 22. Therefore, say to the house of Israel, thus says the Lord God, it is not for your sake, O house of Israel, that I am about to act. But for my holy name, which you have profaned among the nations where you went, I will vindicate the holiness of my great name, which has been profaned among the nations, which you have profaned in their midst. Thus the nations will know that I am the Lord, declares the Lord God, when I prove myself holy uh, among you in their sight. For I will take you from the nations, gather you from all the lands, and bring you into your own land. That can't be anybody but the people that were exiled. So, but yeah, but but what about people who say no? Well, that that happened after uh, after uh, everything was be- was. Uh, go for it, Ariel. You got something? You know, let's hear it. I have something to say. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> um, as far as I can see, this whole thing, I think that it's possible for an amillennialist to take that passage you read and use it for their own purposes. And the reason why they probably could is because, as I see it, one of the key issues in all millennialism is the idea, the issue of um, 
hermeneutics. Yes, absolutely. It's the issue of how, what is our method of interpreting scripture? And in, historically speaking, um, our allegorism didn't come into play among believers until really, as early, actually as early as the middle of the second century. Right. From then on, from then on, it became part and parcel of Christian interpretation for millennia, literally. Mm -hmm. And it was the dispensationalist that helped kind of say, no, we can't do that. We have to go to a historical grammatical. So, yeah. so, what, so what you're saying is, is that, and, and this is kind of where I was going too, Ariel, is that what, what an what a amillennialist might be able to say is, okay, well, yeah, they were spread out to the lands during the exile, during the Babylonian exile, and then God brought them back to the lands, and they were brought back from all these different nations and whatnot, and then you even have you know, uh, God vindicating his people by sending Yeshua, by sending okay. Jesus Christ. But wait a minute. Keep reading in Ezekiel. He says, then I will sprinkle clean water on you, and you will be clean. I will cleanse you from all your filthiness and from all your idols. Didn't Yeshua do that? Not for the nation. I mean, the nation hasn't been clean. Moreover, I will give you a new heart and put a new spirit within you, and I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes. Has the nation of Israel done that? No. You go to, you go to Israel today. Israel is not a religious nation. There are religious people in Israel. And there's a good, you know, but people think of Israel as, oh, these are all these Jewish people who love God and worship him. No, no that's not no, true. Israel yeah. is a secular nation. He goes on to say, I will put my spirit within you, and you will be careful to observe my ordinances. You will live in the land that I gave to your forefathers, so you will be my people, and I will be your God. Moreover, I will save you from all your uncleanness. I will call for the grain and multiply it. I will, I will not bring a famine on you. I will multiply the fruit. And he goes on, and if you keep reading, he says, and never again. Will you be exiled? So, but this is God's sovereign voice. Okay, but 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 this is his—it's his name. It's his work. Yeah. Um, I, I want to go back to your original question because you actually asked, "How would you answer a person who said the Book of Zechariah has already been has already happened?" That's right. And I've heard it said <laughs> that biblical geography is very important. I've heard this said that Ariel teaches this that. Biblical geography is very important, and I thought this might be a chance for him to uh, give us a little bit more insight. Uh, when, how, Ooh, see, how, how see, recently see, have you been <laughs> see, see, now this is what happens when somebody says that they aren't going to have anything to say on the show. Everybody gangs up on them, and we'll pull them into conversation. <laughs> I, I, I just want to ask, how, how recently have you been in the land? Because you said that it's already happened, so he hasn't been in the land for maybe a month or so. So it could have happened in the last month, but I don't think so. Here's my question for you. Zechariah 14, uh, verse 4 says, And in that day his feet will stand on the mountain of olives, which faces Jerusalem on the east, and the mountain of olives shall be split in two, from east to west, making a very large valley. Half of the mountain shall move towards the north, and half towards the south. And I'm just wondering if you could tell me a little bit about that geography and what would you say to a person? Has that happened? Well, geographically speaking, of course, the Mount of Olives is the largest mountain ridge in the whole area. It overshadows the entire city of Jerusalem, and it's a, it's a north-south ridge. Now, there is a little split in the, Mount of, in the ridge of the Mount of Olives, and that's the Kidron Valley. That's, that flows down. That's a perennial, that's a wadi, we call it. A, when there's water, there's water in the valley. And it goes down to the Dead Sea. 
But that's always been there. That's, that's, that's not new. That's, that's always been there as part of the geography of Jerusalem. Zechariah is talking about a more serious split, a most definite split that you could definitely, definitely see where tons of water will flow through from the Mediterranean to the Dead Sea. And um, that is, there's never been any recorded split like that in the entire geographic history of Israel. And it's not that way today, to be sure. It, oh, go ahead. It, just to read a little further, I know this is in biblical geography, but then it says, it goes on to say in verse 6, that there will be no light, that the light will be diminished, and it shall be in one day, which is known to the Lord, neither day or night, but uh, at evening time it shall happen. Uh, so there's this idea, and it talks about the living waters flowing from Jerusalem, half, uh, as you stated. Um, in both summer and winter it shall occur. So apparently, I would answer the person that said this has already happened, that they need to prove archaeologically that this has actually happened and show me a historic record that this has actually occurred. And if it hasn't, then when is it going to occur? There is no stream, either, either on Nahal, which is a, a river with water in it all the time, or um, a, I'm sorry, a Nahal, Nahar, is a river with water in it all the time, and a Nahal is a wadi, a uh, temporary stream. There is neither of those flow from the Mediterranean Sea to the Sea of Gal- um, to the Dead Sea. But I'm, none whatsoever. I'm guessing that this is where a uh, a amillennialist gets into di- gets into allegory. Is that correct? It is. Okay, and that's where the question of hermeneutics comes <clears throat> up, right. because now when they can't answer it, well, this is allegorical. Yeah. Okay, I want to go back to that hermeneutic thing. Yeah. And, and again, I'm not a dispensationalist, and I think dispensationalism has given us some great things and given us some terrible things. The terrible thing that it's done is it's found a way to abolish the Torah without actually abolishing it. In other words, it says, and I, I heard this, I taught this. Uh, uh, I, no, I didn't teach it, I was taught it, okay? That God has a prophetic stopwatch for Israel. And when the Spirit was given at Pentecost, he stopped the clock for Israel, and he started the clock for the church. Mm-hmm. So everything, Israel is in suspension. It's like you just, all of a sudden, you just froze in midair. And when the church age is done, then he'll start that clock up again, and Israel will, will come back. And the, So the Torah is suspended. It's not abolished. It's suspended. Now here's the thing that the dispensationalists gave us that, uh, that helped us understand. When in the second century the church began to, the emerging church began to get its foothold, there was a big problem. The big problem was, should we reject the Tanakh, or the Old Testament? In other words, there was this guy by the name of Marcion who said, look, this stuff is not our Bible. It's this a different f- God, even. He, yeah, he said. But, he, but, but he would say, you can't take, for instance, Isaiah, you can't take that. That's not our mail. That was written to Israel. If we take that, it's like we're open and reading somebody else's mail. Okay, so so then what was the answer to that as far as the Marcion was was marked as a heretic? Okay, so how did the rest of the church fathers react to that? They said, no, it is our uh, our uh, scriptures. Why? Because we've replaced Israel. The dispensationalists said, no, that that's a misreading of the Bible. But now they had the same problem. How are we going to utilize the Tanakh? When it wasn't written to us, it was written to Israel. And so they have this suspension thing. It's like all of these things were written with a view to the New Testament. That's our Bible because that's for the church age. Once the church age is over, then Israel will go back 
and read the Bible and be converted and so forth and so on. So they had a solution to the hermeneutic problem. But again, the dispensationalists didn't keep to their own historical grammatical interpretation. They allowed typology, which right. is a form of allegorizing. Typology is when you say, for instance, you look at Joseph and you say, Joseph is a type of the Messiah. And so you make, you draw theological uh, summary from that. Uh, when I was working during seminary, I worked at a parking garage, and the fellow that I worked for was a fine Christian brother, strong, strong dispensationalist. And he said, I, I asked him one time, uh, he's now with the Lord, uh, but I asked him one time, we'd always have these theological conversations, and I would say, I asked him, I said, how would you, as a dispensationalist, what would be your proof of the Trinity? Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, one God, so forth and so on. He said, oh, that's easy. I said, what's that? He says, there were three levels to the ark. I said, what? He said, yeah, there were, read it. When, he, when, when, when Noah built the ark, there were three levels. The ark is a picture of God who saves his people through the flood. Why would there be three levels? Because there's Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. So what the dispensationalists would do is they would take a typology and use that for their allegory. <laughs> Yeah. And so they came up with, with theology that didn't match the historical, grammatical interpretation of the Bible. Okay, so let's talk a little bit now for, for uh, uh, talking about dispensationalism. Yeah, it's, it's on there. Uh, Ariel's trying to pick the, the, the things off my clothes. No, it's, it's my, 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 I'm, I'm in rags. I'm, I'm in tattered rags. <laughs> That's what's going on. Um, <laughs> um, so for those who might be dispensationalists, let's talk a little bit about a pre-trib, post-trib rapture. Uh, I grew up, now this might not have been uh, taught to me by my father, but I remember very vividly going to Atlanta, Georgia to be with my cousins, and we watched a movie, and I think it was something like Take In or you know something like that, and... Left behind. It was so, well. It was, I was young, and I remember. I remember the idea of like, uh, you know, this guy's shaving, and his wife's talking to him in the other from the other room, and all of a sudden, the, the you know, she comes in, and the shavers, the water's running, the, water's running, the shavers in the in the sink, and and he's nowhere to be found. Yeah, the clothes are on the floor. You know, all that kind of stuff. And I remember thinking to myself, that's going to be really crazy when that happens. Like I, yeah, like I'm ready for that. You know, I'll, I'll be one of those people who all of a sudden planes crashing out exactly. That's right. So, I mean, I, I kind of, I, I wasn't raised with a pre-trib rapture theology in mind, but from the Christians around me, that's kind of what I got. So, what, what is a response, what, how would you guys respond to pre-trib, post-trib raptures? Go for it. I worked in the back room, and I had the radio on. This was like early 90s. And I just, you know, I'd listen to the Christian radio, and this guy named Grand Adventure, Chuck Missler, came on, and he would talk, the rabbis say this. And I was like, I didn't even know there were such things as rabbis. <laughs> <laughs> Nachmanides this, and, and uh, Akiva that. that, yeah. And, uh, and the, the mystical reading of the Torah, I was like, wow, what is this? All the answers will be unlocked. I seemed to know his Hebrew and his Greek, and, and I was I was amazed at these things. And he was all about the rapture, of course. Um, and so I kind of you jumped on board with kind of just these these new eyes to this that there's this 
Jewish background to the New Testament and things like that, all as one, one giant meal, if you would, that I kind of imbibed for a few years. Um, and so I subsequently have, have stepped away from that. I've kind of tried a couple different suits on along the way there as learning. Um, but the rapture was something that never really stuck with me, even though I was listening to it, you know, um, that idea of the disappearance and things like that um, never never clicked for me. For some reason, I never swallowed it. Well, oh, Tim, did you I, say? I, well, I just want to say that, again, one of the things that we owe to dispensationalism, the reason that dispensationalism gained such a foothold so quickly after Darby and, and Schofield in the early 1900s was because basically Christianity, pretty much across the board, worldwide, had become this kind of uh, nonchalant uh, kind of, uh, you know, a religiosity. Social club. A social club. And, and this idea that there was a future return of Yeshua had, had clearly been well understated. And so when the dispensationalists came up and said, he's coming again, and he's going to come and he's going to take us, are you ready? It was exciting. And, and, yeah, and it was exciting. And this is where you started getting the so-called, I'm doing uh, quote marks in the air for those of you on radio. Uh, uh, this is where the e evangelism or the gospel was started out. Do you know where you'll be when Jesus comes? I mean, that, that became the, the, the punchline for how you talk to people about Jesus. So, uh, Will you be part of the rapture? Yeah. The other thing I would say is this. Let's face it, dispensationalism was born out of the UK and the United States. During a time when essentially the UK and the United States, you know, we went through wars, I know, two world wars, but it wasn't really on our soil, at least not in the United States, okay? We, and I've heard this so many times, God, or Jesus would never allow his people to go through the Great Tribulation. In the meantime, there's people in Africa, people in right. India that are giving their lives. Now. There's pastors. Even today. Yeah. There's pastors who are being buried alive in these years. And so this this theology had a tendency, and I'm not saying across the board, and I want to make sure people that are listening, if, if you're a dispensationalist, we're not in any way saying that a dispensationalist, dispensationalism is some kind of heresy. We're just saying, it, 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 from my vantage point, it doesn't fit the scriptures, number one. Number two... Uh, you know, God has allowed and even brought his people through unbelievable struggles and sorrows in the past. Why would we think that we as an American uh, you know, church, so to speak, would be spared this? Well, for me, the one thing that I saw with, with the, with the pre-trib rapture was that in the scriptures it just seems like the, the believers are constantly going through Tribula it, it seems like they're being persecuted in the script, you know, in the prophecies. It seems like the, you know, all these horrible things are happening to the believers and, and, you know, many will fall away and all this kind of stuff. And it's like, man, if that's what the, you know, what is that? And I think that's where you get, where you get some of the dispensationalists. Uh, there's another angle to the whole thing, too. I think Tim uh, kind of hinted at it a little bit. Um, some people use the teaching of a pre tribulation rapture as a means of evangelism, of trying to help people to come to believe. I think that depends on who you are. There's a whole bunch of people that see things completely differently. What I mean is this. Uh, in my first year in Israel, I worked at a uh, Messianic 
tourist place right on the Sea of Galilee. We handled tour groups that come in. We showed them a picture, uh, a 40-minute multimedia slide presentation of the history of the Galilee. And after we we brought the tour groups into this big auditorium, introduced the film, and let it go. And part of my job was to do that, but part of my job was to, while that film is going on, go out and talk to the Israeli tour guides while that's going on. And we would give them tea or coffee and make them feel good, and, and we would just talk with them. And we would hear story after story about what it was like for them to sit on evangelical Christian tour buses and hear pastors or leaders talk about what they call the rapture of how they're glad that Israel is back in the land because that means that our Jesus is coming back soon and we're going to get raptured out of this mess. <laughs> yeah. And they were giving, uh, they were telling me their response to hearing that thing. And in their words, that's one of the greatest forms of anti-Semitism that, that they have heard in recent years. Yeah, but I, I want to go on record as saying, I, and I think we all do, even if we may interpret it slightly differently, I believe that First Thessalonians 4 says that he's going to come in the air and we're going to meet him and we'll ever be with the Lord. My view is that, it's, uh, let me use this illustration, it's like a, a wife or a bride who, and the groom or shall we say the husband has been away on a long trip and she's looking out the window and she's waiting and waiting and waiting and she sees him coming down the, down the street walking or whatever, she leaves the house, she goes out to embrace him and you know, and, and then what does he do? He brings her back into the house. So th this this meeting together with Yeshua in the air doesn't mean what. And I think he's coming back to reign. Right, and I think that's the, that's a key point for me because I grew up in the '80s with you know every loud boom. I thought <gasps> the Russians are attacking. You know, we just got nuked. I mean, that was I mean that was a real childhood fear of mine. Mm. Uh, I was being fed by you know everything yeah. in the media, and I think for me the the change in the whole rapture thing was when I realized, okay, there might be a rapture, but if anything, we know from uh, the apostolic scriptures that the way Yeshua left, he's coming back. Right. If anything, if the rapture is anything what I think it's going to be, we're going to go and meet him, and when he descends, there's going to be this whole group of people descending. So it's like, I don't have to worry about getting an airline ticket to Israel. Uh, that's what I'm hoping anyway. I mean, if he returns and he's in Israel, I'm going to find my way there. But I'm hoping if the rapture is anything, then I'm on the earth with him. Uh, and I think that's a, a missing part because it's, a, it's an escape clause. It's that the American gospel was, it's the left behind. You don't want to be left behind. You want to make sure you get your ticket for the big rapture uh, uh, transfer into heaven, and it would all be bliss. Right. Well, you know, for one of the other things that I, I'm, I'm thinking of as we're talking about all this is that people who hold to, uh, you know, well, Christianity as a whole, even at the ETS meetings, when I have told people that I believe that the temple will be rebuilt and that uh, sacrifices will be done in the temple again, I get looked at like I just fell off the bus and hit my head real hard. Uh, Christian Christianity as a whole, whether you, yeah, exactly. Have you it, ever read the book of Hebrews? Yeah, exactly, exactly. And so uh, it doesn't matter if, if Christians are dispensationalists, all millennialists. It, it doesn't matter. Uh, the idea of a new temple being rebuilt and then somehow Yeshua being on earth or not being on earth or whatever and these and these sacrifices being done does not compute, as Rob just said. That's, that, that's back to the point that Tim made and I shared a little bit about 
you know, listening to Chuck Missler. It's like the Lord uses some of these ministries in spite of themselves, you know, because there was that passion for Israel, this passion for studying. No, you know, the Torah was written in Hebrew, you know. That, wow, that's a that's something I can learn and I can study. Those those types of thoughts kind of bloomed while listening to someone preaching that way. That there is a there is a future for the flesh and blood offspring of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and and all these sorts of new ideas that were really exciting to me and and, and you know motivating me to dive into the scripture and and, and uh, discuss these things with friends and pastors at the time. And so, but on the flip side, there's this other angle, you know, like this Harold Camping, you know, I think he, he calculated that the end was going to be, you know, and, but there was, I don't know how many people were excited about. Oh, people sold everything they had. And I, I have to think, is, is that all for naught, or do you think that there's there's got to be some some people in there that are going to take something good away from, you know, those who are the Lord's. They're going to have learned something. They're going to have gained some wisdom. And they're going to move on. And that's going to be an important part of their of their maturity. Would you, would you agree? Well, we, we shouldn't just, uh, uh, you know, we have to, when we're pointing a finger, there's three pointing back yeah, at us. You know, one, one of the, one of the uh, bylines of what I've heard from so many Messianic prophets, again I'm doing the quote marks in the air, is their byline is if at first you don't succeed, prophesy again. Mm -hmm. You know, it's uh, it, it's it's like, you know, how many uh, how many of these fellows do we have that have prophesied the return of Yeshua and, and they're still have their ministries going and people are giving their money and whatever and, and I'm thinking to myself, these qualify for a false prophet. Yep. They ought to or have be, suggested certain books to be removed from the yeah, or suggested certain books writing. to be to say Hebrews is, should be in our Bible, and so forth and so on. These people ought to be silenced. They should not be listened to, because they are false prophets. They've proven themselves to be a false prophet. You can't trust them. So uh, let's go back for a few seconds to the idea of the of the uh, temple being rebuilt and that kind of thing. There, even it doesn't matter really who you talk to within Christianity. The idea that, that a temple will be rebuilt and that uh, and that uh, animal sacrifice will be done again is outside the realm of possibility for for Christians. Right. Okay, but but so what do you say to someone? What would what would you guys say to someone here? And I'm. Keep in mind, I'm just trying to keep conversation going here. But what would you say to somebody who, who says, oh, no, Ezekiel's temple is either metaphorical or, no, how in the world can you think that, that uh, we're going to have animal sacrifice again? But back to the hermeneutics. Right. I mean, why would he tell us the, the dimensions of the steps and the dimensions of the, of the windows and, you know, the rooms and so forth and so on? I mean, if it's going to be allegorical, it ought to still have some meaning. Okay? How do you, like, how do you, how do you assign an allegorical meaning or metaphorical meaning to those kind of details. Right. Yeah. Uh, you know, e exactly. And so, you know... So much so much of what happens, I think, in theology, and I'm looking at the three fingers pointed back at me when I say this, uh, when we have tension, when we have problems that we're trying to solve, we come up with answers. And unfortunately, some of those answers are way off base, and I think that will drive the texts that now don't make sense because of our new answers, we have to reinterpret and I think that's where the hermeneutic, uh, hermeneutical issue comes in, because now, because we have a solution, we have to change and inject new meaning into mm, the way sure. things are interpreted based upon our new conclusions. Sure. I think it all drives, it's all driven by this tension. What do we do with tension? How do we answer mm. these questions, the big questions, and how do we convince other qu people that our interpretation or our, 
our framing of this, and again, back to the rightly dividing the word of truth to pick on dispensationalists, if we aren't, we're not being proper custodians of God's word if we don't divide it correctly. Yeah, well, this is one of the, the, the things that we wish we hadn't had from dispensationalism. Uh, uh, I forget, it's in Revelation, maybe chapter 5 in the footnotes of Schofield, of the old Schofield Bible. He says that there are four different Gospels. Uh, years, some years ago, I was at a conference and uh, I was teaching something about the covenants uh, and I took the time to stop and ask the people, how many of you, if you were, if you were brought up or came to salvation in the Christian church, how many of you were taught that people in the Old Testament were saved by keeping the law and, and people in the New Testament are saved by believing in Jesus. Right. And I would say, uh, conservatively, 75% of the people raised their hands. Mm-hmm. And, and so that's why the, you have the people saying, we can't have the sacrifices that would diminish the death of Yeshua. Well, apparently Paul didn't know that because mm-hmm. we have him giving sacrifices long after Yeshua had ascended. And he didn't think the sacrifices in any way diminished from Yeshua. Why? Because the sacrifices were given to point to the Messiah. They were never given to take away sin. The writer to the Hebrews is explicit about that. So when when the temple is rebuilt, and there will be sacrifices. And here's a principle that I find in the scriptures. Oftentimes, when Israel or any one of the patriarchs gets off track, where does God bring them? Right back to where they got off track. Example. Okay. He, He calls Abraham, chapter 12 of Genesis. Right? What happens in chapter 13? There's a famine in the land. God had, prom- God had promised to, 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 to bless him, but there's a famine in the land. So what does he do? He goes south. Well, but first he builds an altar to the Lord. Then he goes south to Egypt. Every time you go down to Egypt, you're in trouble. Okay? <laughs> so he goes south to Egypt, and he lies, about, you know, he, he lies about his wife. He gets in trouble. She's taken, and so forth and so on. God blesses them nonetheless, gives Pharaoh the dream, you know, he, 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 let, he lets uh, Sarah go, and they come back wealthier than ever. Where does he come back to? Read the text. It says, and he came back to the altar that he had built and offered an offering to the Lord. Now, there's a whole lot more in that story. But it seems like what God does is when you get off track, he takes you back to where you need to repent and say, uh, let me start there and go now go the right way. Where did Israel get off? They got off believing that the temple and the sacrifices somehow approved righteousness to them. Mm-hmm. They're going to come back in the millennium with new hearts and with the Spirit of God. They're going to look and do the sacrifices then. They're going to go, oh. I see what they were for in the first place. Right. And if you take that literally, you have Yeshua returning to a temple <laughs> and now teaching them the way it should be. Right. In other words, where they got off track before was rejecting the very Messiah that it all pointed to. Now, if it's rebuilt and the Messiah returns, yeah. now the Messiah can say, now you're going to accept me. Can we even imagine looking on him? Uh, I mean, standing in the temple, you know, and, and, and being with him. I mean, he's with us now, I know that. But there's something in us that just longs to, you know, to, to see this one who is our Savior and our Lord. And I, I think there's something to that. Um, I th- my opinion is that if you pull people in the body of Messiah and ask them to explain specifically what the good news is and explain specifically what Yeshua accomplished on the cross. If you ask them what is the meaning of terms like justification, redemption, salvation, and so forth, I think a lot of believers have a really difficult time explaining all that. 
what's going to happen is that there, most people now have very little appreciation for what a offering, what a blood offering was, and therefore very little appreciation for Yeshua's blood offering mm -hmm. of himself. That's right. When, when he comes back and the temple is and the, that whole thing is reinstated, I think it's going to be largely educational right. to explain that belief so they can understand who it is that's sitting there, what happened to him in that time. Right. Yeah, no doubt. Well, all right. Um, let's see here. I I think we're we're about to wrap up. I know we've had a little bit of a short show, but we're we're uh, about to wrap up here. Um, I just want to say it, it's Thursday right now, and if you guys want, well, yeah, but this is aired on Thursday, and so you guys are listening to this on Thursday. I will be posting different uh, pictures and different updates and whatnot on my Twitter feed. Uh, about the UMJA conference where all of these guys are teaching. Every single one of them, Tim, Rob, Gary, and Ariel, are all going to be presenting at this conference. I'm the only person in the Torah Resource staff that's not presenting at this conference. Thank heavens. Um, anyway, I, per, perhaps. I, I doubt it. Anyway. Ah, <laughs> oh, thanks. <laughs> there you go. No, so I... I but. I want people to know that if you want to uh, see pictures and you want to see updates from uh, what we're doing at the conference, please follow me on Twitter, at Caleb Hegg. There's two G's in Hegg. You can also follow Rob Van Hoff on Twitter because he is young enough to have a Twitter account and be hip like that. He's at Rob Van Hoff, two F's in Van Hoff. If you disagree with us, if you are a dispensationalist or an amillennialist and you totally disagree with us and what we've said today, then shoot us an email, radio at TorahResource.com. That's radio at TorahResource.com. A huge thank you to all of the guests sitting around the round table today. It has been a joy uh, talking to all of you. I knew, I knew we would get Ariel to uh, talk more than a yes or a no. And uh, so thank you very much for being with us, Ariel, all the way from, all the way from Israel. And maybe we'll pull you onto the show again. You're going to be staying in, in Tacoma with us. And uh, so please follow me on Twitter for updates to the UMJA conference as I post about the papers and the articles that are being read here that we hope will glorify our great God and Savior, Yeshua the Messiah. Mm -hmm.